Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see you all here this morning. If you're new to Sovereign Grace, welcome. Glad you're here. I'm glad you found us. We're thankful that you came to worship with us. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. It's my privilege to be able to continue our series through the book of John and these I Am Saints. We will be in John 8 today. Let's get into God's word together. John 8, starting in verse 48. John 8, 48 to 59. As we continue this great series through these I Am statements, reminding us of who our Savior is and what he's done. This morning we have the I Am statement that's kind of left out most of the time. Because it's not I am the bread or I am the light, it's I am period. And I hope we will all see at the end how foundational and important this I am statement really is. So let's go to God's word. John 8, starting in verse 48. This is the word of the Lord. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word, we pray that you would help us Understand it, that your spirit would soften hearts, make us aware of the places that we are reluctant or unwilling to recognize Jesus as the Lord over our own life. I pray that your son would be glorified as the great I am, the Lord of the universe, because he is. And since he is Lord, he is our Lord. Pray, Father, that you would be glorified, that your word would speak to us, and that we, your people, would be changed for your son's glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas. I absolutely love this time of year. In fact, I love almost everything about it. I love the lights, the decorations, 
the food, the time with friends and family, even all the little Advent things, all the little devotionals you get and all that stuff. I just love it. I love all that stuff. Now, I've learned even recently from a grace group icebreaker that went bad. Not everybody shares my opinion on that one. You know who you are. But even look, even if you're not a big fan of Christmas, even if you don't see things the way I see it, you have to at least admit that this is an incredible time of year. It's a glorious time of year, and it's also a very strange time of year. The way our culture changes and transforms in ways that would never happen any other time of year. I mean, think about it. This afternoon, you can go into a business that wants nothing to do with Jesus. A business that is adamantly against Christianity and against Christians. And you can go and do your Christmas shopping this afternoon. And while you're shopping over the radio, you might hear songs like what we just sang. O come all ye faithful, joy to the world. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Right in this place that is totally against Christ, you'll hear rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's surreal when it happens, isn't it? I mean, it ends because Santa Baby is using the next song, but... (laughs) You know, it's the weird world we live in, all right? This is such a strange time of year, especially considering our culture. We want to cancel everything. We want to topple down statues right and left. But for some reason, our world is okay with Jesus this time of year. We have nativity sets on lawns and in stores. We have crosses and angels, stars on the top of trees, I've seen Jesus painted on the window of stores. I even Googled this week Jesus Christmas toys. Don't recommend it. But I saw dancing Jesus, bobblehead Jesus. I even saw Lego, good shepherd Jesus. You can put his sheep together. Um, I even saw a brand new one this year, which was a nativity set where they're all masked. So that was an experience as well. Here's my point with all that. This time of year, it's almost as if people are fine with that, fine with Jesus being around all over the place. It almost seems as if everybody actually loves Jesus, at least for Christmas time. But if it seems that way, it's only because in our culture, Jesus has been completely redefined. He's been completely sanitized and sentimentalized. He's been remade into our image, to merely a a religious guru, a life coach, a therapist, our friend, a good moral teacher, someone we can kind of learn a few things from. I mean, really, in our culture, Jesus is kind of a blank slate, isn't he? Make him into whatever you want him to be. You Think about it, when was the last time you actually heard someone say, I hate Jesus? I can't stand him. I can't stand him or anything that he teaches. We never hear it because you don't have to do that in our culture. All you have to do is tweak his character a little bit. All you have to do is make a few adjustments to make him a little bit more user-friendly. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, even at Christmas time, our world, and probably even some of us here, still hate Jesus. We still hate Jesus. Just as much or maybe even more than the Jews in this passage hated Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about this morning is why these Jews hate Jesus. Why do people in our culture hate Jesus? What's going on there? I think there are a lot of reasons, but there's three reasons I want to 
point out in this passage, three reasons in this passage, that they hate Jesus as they're trying to understand him. The first one is this. They think he's a lunatic. They think he's crazy in verse 48 through 51. And second, they think he's a liar, verses 52 to 55. And then last, they will not receive him as Lord. They will not submit to him and bow before him as Lord. And so we have lunatic, liar, and Lord. Now, if those sound familiar, I hope some people recognize those. Those are from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He basically says that we have three options with Jesus. We can call him a lunatic and just dismiss him as a crazy person. We can say he's a liar and he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Or we can bow before him as Lord and God. Those are the choices we all have. And those are the choices that these Jews are also wrestling with this morning. So as we enter into this passage, you need to know we just got a small glimpse of really the argument that's happening here. The arguments actually started in verse 32. Flip back to verse 32. It's probably just one page over. With these famous words, this is what kind of got things going. Jesus says in verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the Jews hear these words, which are great words of hope and peace, and they hear freedom, and they basically push back at Jesus and say, we don't need freedom. We're not slaves. Jesus, don't you know we are children of God? We're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. If you were children of God, then you would love me because I've come from God. If you were children of Abraham, you would trust me as he did. But look at you. You lie about me, and you want to kill me. Abraham's not your father. God is not your father. Satan is your father, because you lie like him. As you would imagine, that did not go over well with a bunch of religious leaders to say Satan is your father. And so it reaches this boiling point in verse 48, and they begin to kind of fight dirty. They fight ugly, and they start to call him a lunatic. And look what they say, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, this insult, it's clearly an insult, but it might seem kind of mild to us, right? Samaritans, after all, we're used to hearing about the good Samaritan, right? Isn't that a good thing? And probably most of us, if we've read the Bible, we're like, well, the Samaritans and the Jews seem to have the same kind of struggles with Jesus. Yeah, they don't get along, but, I mean, they're kind of the same, aren't they? But you have to understand The Jews absolutely hated, hated the Samaritans. They were the scum of the earth in their minds. Religious half-breeds. Mudbloods, for those of you who like Harry Potter, right? That's how they saw them. Seriously, they were the product of God's people abandoning God, marrying into all these Canaanite nations. So they were idolaters, fornicators, adulterers, They were seen at the same level as Gentile dogs. They were hated. So by calling Jesus a Samaritan, this was a racial slur. But it was even more than that. Look back at verse 41 with me. Verse 41. The Jews tell Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, if you combine this saying with what he says in verse 48 about being a Samaritan, the implication is probably starting to become clear. We are not born of sexual immorality, Jesus, like you. 
yeah, we've heard stories about Mary and her supposed father, whatever that's going on. You're probably a product of adultery. For all we know, you're a Samaritan as well. Really what they're doing, they're insulting his mother here and his family. Maybe even payback to say, look, you said we're not from Abraham. You're not from Abraham. You're not a child of Abraham either. You're not one of us. And so this insult is just clear hatred of Jesus. But then they take it to another level. They also call him a demon at the end of verse 48. What a slap in the face to the Son of God. You're not from God. You oppose the things of God. You're demonic. You oppose God's work. And really, if they've gone from insulting his mother, now they're insulting his heavenly father. What they're saying here, really, in first century terms is, Jesus, you're crazy. You're nuts. You're not in your right mind. You're demon-possessed. Jesus, you are nothing more than a godless, sinful lunatic. And that's it. You know, there are a lot of people that still believe that about Jesus. They might never come out and say it, but we do believe those things in our heart, especially when we read God's word. I mean, if you've ever read sections of God's word and thought to yourself, this is crazy. No one in their right mind would believe this. No one in their right mind could live like this. I mean, forgive 70 times seven, Matthew 18, Are you kidding me? Do you know what they've done to me? I'm just supposed to let it pass? That's insane. Or how about be patient in suffering, Romans 12. If you've ever endured suffering, you know how hard it is to be patient. And God says, trust me, just wait on me. All of us want to say, God, that's insane. You're the one that's supposed to help me through this. You can fix this in an instant. Just be patient. That's crazy. Or how about this one? Submit to your husband. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. Oh, we know how this goes, right? Have you seen my husband? Have you seen my wife? You kidding me? Submit to them? Love them? I barely respect them. I'm not going to get that kind of love in return. I can't love them like this. That is insane. I think all of us, if we're really honest at times, we say to God, you're crazy. In fact, I think that's what we're saying every single time we sin. It's shaking our puny little fists in God's face and saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. I know better than you, and I'm going to do what I want. So all of us have this in our sinful heart. And how does Jesus respond to these kind of accusations? You're a Samaritan. You're a demon. You're crazy. Verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I find it amazing. He doesn't even say anything about the Samaritan thing. Praise the Lord, Jesus is not like us in this way. I mean, I hope you can relate to that. I would want to fly off the handle. I would want to defend my own honor. I'm sure many of you would be with us. But he simply says, I don't have a demon. I'm not crazy. In fact, I know who defends me. Verse 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. 
Oh, he says, my father is in control. My father is the judge. My father knows the truth. And the truth will come out eventually. I'm not a lunatic. I speak the truth. And here's more truth for you. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I hope you can see how funny this line is in context in a way. How strange it is in many ways. Jesus dismisses their claims. I'm not a, a Samaritan. I'm not a demon. I'm not crazy. And then what does he do? He follows it up with something that sounds crazy. Right? He says, if anyone keeps my words, that's the difference between life and death. He's not just putting himself at the center of the story for the Jews. He's putting himself at the center of the entire universe. He's claiming to be the master over life and death. It's crazy to say those things unless you're God. You guys know parents. You can say, look, if you obey me, things are going to go better this afternoon. Some of you probably said that this morning. Coaches and teachers can say, look, if you listen to me, your grade will improve in this class. You'll do better on the field if you listen to me and you heed my advice. Only God can say, if you keep my words, you will never taste death. And they don't see him as God. So this sounds absolutely crazy. And so what do they do? They try to dismiss him as a lunatic, as a crazy person. They push it even further, and they try to call him a liar. Verses 52 and on. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. You're definitely crazy. Why are you crazy? Because you're lying to us. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Jesus, it's right there in the scriptures. You can see they died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? See, what they're saying is, Jesus, don't you know your Bibles? Come on, you're a rabbi. The best of us die. Everyone dies. Even the people we look up to die. The people like Abraham who follow God and keep his word, they still die. You're twisting the scriptures. You're lying to us. But what Jesus was actually doing is he was talking about the second death, wasn't he? He's talking about spiritual death and damnation, what Jesus calls the second death in Revelation. As Hebrews 9, 27 says, it has been appointed for man once to die. That's the first death. And after that, to face judgment, the wrath of God. That's the second death. And I hope you can see what's happening here. As they're hurling insults at Jesus, calling him crazy, calling him a liar, calling him a Samaritan, what's Jesus doing? He's offering them grace. He's offering them a solution to their biggest problem, which is sin and death, which is at the very root of their hatred towards him. In the midst of this craziness, Jesus is offering them the truth, and they're blind to it. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not see the things of the Spirit of God. They're so focused on the physical, they can't see the spiritual death they're in bondage to. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. But they keep insulting him, accusing him of lying, spreading false hope, twisting the scripture with Abraham. And that's what happens in verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who also died, are you greater than them, Jesus? 
You know, there's a very easy answer to that question. Yes. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it wasn't that long we were in Hebrews, right? That long ago? Hebrews teaches us that. Abraham, Moses, all these men, these great men, they were servants in the house of God. Jesus is the son. He's the final prophet. Hebrews 1, 2, appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. I don't know about you, but that seems a little better. In fact, it's not just quantitatively better. He's in a whole different class, isn't he? Because he is God. But amazingly, Jesus doesn't go there. He actually goes after the question that they desperately need to hear and that we desperately need to hear the answer to. Look at the end of verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus, who do you think you are? Brothers and sisters, that is the question of life, isn't it? That is the question of life that we all must answer. That has eternal consequences. Life and death, heaven and hell consequences. That's the question that you are confronted with this morning, just like these Jews are in this passage. And you cannot get it wrong. They have already gotten it wrong twice, calling him a lunatic and a liar, now accusing them of being puffed up. You're just lying to build up your reputation, Jesus. Look what Jesus says, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not puffing myself up. I'm not trying to make myself bigger than I actually am. I'm, that would be useless. Why? It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. My Father knows the truth. My Father will glorify me. And you see Jesus kind of start to turn the tables on them, don't they? You think he's your God? Verse 55. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Wow. Jesus is going after them. Not in a sinful, overreactive way. He's rebuking them with the truth, isn't he? He's saying, you accuse me of being a liar. It's you that are the liar. You claim to know God. You don't know God. I know God. I'm from God. He is my Father. You claim to do his will. You claim to keep his word. I've actually come into this world to keep his word because you couldn't. None of us could. You're a liar. You accuse me of lying. And if I were to agree with you, then I would be a liar too, but I can't do that. That's not the truth. I am not a liar like you. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, look, you are missing it. You don't know who I am. You still hate me. You won't listen to my words. You won't even entertain what I'm trying to say. You're just trying to dismiss me. Just trying to get rid of me so you can go on in your sin. And so Jesus essentially says, well, I'm going to give you something that you can no longer dismiss. I want to give you something to make myself as explicit as I possibly can be. And please understand me here. Jesus has been clear. 
He has been incredibly clear on who he is. But he's about to tell them something that they can no longer ignore, no longer dismiss, no longer deny. He's about to tell them that he is the Lord and their Lord. Look at verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You know, there's part of this that the Jews uh, would not be offended by. Abraham looking forward to the day of the Lord. Abraham looking forward to the Messiah, to the seed of the woman. That makes perfect sense to them. We even read passages earlier in the service in Isaiah all about the day of the Lord, right? So these men looked to the day of the Lord, but what would have sent them through the roof was when Jesus said, Abraham looked forward to my day. I am the Lord. The day of the Lord is my day. The day of salvation is now. I am the seed of the woman. Yes, the one that you called son of Satan. That's the one that confronts you in your sin. I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am the Lord, and I am your Lord. Again, this would sound absolutely insane to say that he's the Lord of Abraham, the one that Abraham looked forward to. Let's stop for a second and think about that. How exactly did Abraham look forward to Jesus? How did he see Jesus' day and rejoice? And we got a taste of that in Hebrews 11, if you remember. We talked about Abraham looking forward to Jesus. And we'll go even deeper into that when we get to Genesis 12 and, and beyond. Right? But it'll probably be a while before we get there. But we can see all kinds of ways that Abraham looked forward to Jesus' day. Especially in the covenant, the calling of Abraham. As he was told, look, you will become a great nation. You will have land. And your offspring will be a blessing to the entire world. Paul takes that in Galatians 3 and says that offspring is not Isaac. That offspring is Jesus. Isaac is a type. He's a picture of the one to come. And and Abraham could have looked through those promises to see Christ. He could have seen it in Melchizedek, this priest king of Salem who Abraham interacts with very briefly but has a really interesting interaction, almost like a worship service in a way, in the way they interact But then Hebrews 7 takes that up and says, Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That was a glimpse of Christ as well. It could have been a lot of these things. But I think what Jesus is especially referring to here, by saying that Abraham rejoiced and was glad, I believe that Jesus is actually referring to Isaac, which you may know his name means laughter. Do you remember that story? When God said, you're going to have a child in your old age, and what do they do? Abraham and Sarah laughed in God's face. This is ridiculous. This is crazy. And then what did God do? He gave him a child. In Genesis 21, they actually laugh in faith. They rejoice in God so much that they name Isaac laughter so that God will keep his promise no matter how ridiculous it looks. And if he keeps this promise to give us Isaac, he will keep all the promises and the offspring to come will come. He's rejoicing in the day of Christ with Isaac. And it even gets to a further revelation in Genesis 22 as God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, your one and only son, the son of promise that you waited so long for. And as Abraham's going to kill his son, God provides a substitute ram. 
this picture of substitutionary atonement, which Hebrews 11 picks up and says, on that day of testing, Abraham lived by faith. By faith in what? By faith in Christ. He got glimpses of Jesus probably in all of these ways, in so many others even. But here's the sad part, the sad reality. These Jews knew those stories. They knew all of that. But they're refusing to see what Abraham rejoiced in. They're refusing to see Jesus as the Lord who is to come. And instead, they continue to mock him. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Jesus, you're not even an old man. And have you seen Abraham? Come on. That was thousands of years ago. You're not even an old man yet. You're lying again. You're crazy. And Jesus follows it up with this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen, basically listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is a huge, huge statement by Jesus. It does answer their question. I mean, Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I was. That would be crazy enough. I'm pre-existent. I existed before Abraham was. Right? I'm just older than Abraham. I'm an angel or I'm a superhuman. That would be crazy enough. Jesus didn't say before Abraham, I was. This is not a claim of pre-existence. This is a claim of self-existence. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm not created. I didn't come to be. I don't have a beginning. I have always been, and I will forever be. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is telling them, I am eternal, which is enough to make them go crazy. But it's not all he's saying. He's not saying, I'm eternal like God. He's not saying, put me on the same level as God. No, by saying, I am, he's claiming the divine name of God for himself. He's saying, I am the Lord. I'm the Lord from Exodus 3. And if I'm the Lord, I am your Lord. I referred to this last week, but let's actually turn to the passage, Exodus 3, the burning bush, and see where Jesus is drawing from this name. Keep your finger in John 8. We'll come back there in just a second. This is the burning bush. When Moses is interacting with God, God just told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Right, you're going to leave this exodus out of Egypt to the promised land, Moses. And Moses says, ah, I, have a, I have a question for you. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God says, my name is I am. Just where we get the word Yahweh. 
right, in Hebrew. In Greek, which is the Greek translation of that passage in the Old Testament, the Bible of Jesus' day, the Septuagint, you know what it says there? Ego eimi. I am. I am. And again, it means self-existent, eternal, ever-present, ever-living one. But it means so much more than that. Look at verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, the I am, right, the one we just talked about, is also the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I'm not just the self-existent one. I'm not just the eternal one. I am majestic and transcendent and glorious. I am the I am. But I'm also the God of your fathers. I'm also the one who draws near to you. I'm also the one who makes covenant with my people and keeps covenant with my people. I'm the God who's with you and for you. That's what my name means. And how is God most with us? Look at verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, I am, the God of your fathers who's with us and for us, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, and listen to this, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, I am Yahweh, the self-existent eternal one. I am the God of your fathers, and I'm also the God who redeems you. I'm the God who keeps my promise. I'm going to redeem you from slavery in Egypt and bring you into the promised land because I am your God and you will be my people. And this becomes this foundational revelation, one of the most foundational revelations for God's people in the entire Old Testament. Prophets come back to this passage again and again to talk about who God is. Israel's calendar revolved around this bringing it up again every year at Passover, reflecting on the great works of I Am, so generation after generation could see the goodness of I Am, the goodness of this God, this Ego, a me. And then Jesus is crazy enough, centuries, thousands of years even later, to say before Abraham was, I Am, Ego, a me. I'm Yahweh, I'm God. Now, if you know the book of John, you know the gospel of John, he's not subtle about this. This is just a culmination of all that John's been telling us. In fact, I'm sure most of us even know the way that book of John actually begins, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. That's Jesus. He is God. He was there in the beginning. And then John says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, the I am, the great Yahweh, the God of the universe, came into human history as a man to lead a new exodus, to redeem his people, not from Egypt, but from their sin. And the whole book of John is actually structured around to teach this to us. 
You may not know this or not, but there are seven signs in the book of John. Seven signs. Jesus did way more miracles and way more signs than that. But there are seven that John included in this book. Water into wine in chapter 3. Healing Roman official's son in chapter 4. Healing the paralytic in chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 and walking on water in chapter 6. Healing a blind man in chapter 9. And raising Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs that Jesus does to show, to reveal to the world who he is. There's also seven I am statements with the predicate. Basically, the ego, a me, the divine name of God with something tacked on at the end. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. What you may not know is there's actually seven I am statements that don't have a predicate. That's I am, period. Now, I don't have time to expound these this morning. You can write them down if you want. But the first comes with the woman at the well in John four twenty six. When she's trying to figure out who Jesus is, he says, I am. It's translated, I am he, but it's a go, a me. In chapter 6, when Jesus walks on the water to his disciples, what's the first thing he says to them? I am. Don't be afraid. Isn't that incredible? He's, he's proclaiming the name of God there. And three times, three times in our chapter, chapter 8, in verse 24 and verse 28, he says, I am. And then at the very end, it culminates in this, before Abraham was, I am. And then in John 13, 19, and John 18, 5, there's two more times. Seven signs, seven I am statements with a predicate, seven I am statements without a predicate. You think John has an agenda? Think John knows what he's doing? The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing when he inspired this? This is so helpful to come out of Genesis 1, isn't it? We learn that this seven is this number of completion, this number of perfection, the number that we associate with the first creation. And what's John trying to say? Jesus has come as the great I am to restore creation. Jesus has come to do the work of recreation. And he's the only one that can do it. Because he is truly God. He can be righteous. He can be perfect in our place. He can pay an infinite debt. And he's truly man. He can be our substitute. He can die on the cross for us. And raised from the dead to give us newness of life. Jesus has come as the firstborn of the new creation to do a work of recreation. And it's almost too much for us to even imagine. It's too much for these Jews to handle. It's even greater than they could have possibly even dreamed. Now, it's not different. It's not that Jesus is answering different promises. It is a literal fulfillment of all those old covenant promises. It's the same substance. But it's just mind-bogglingly glorious. I love the way G.K. Beale talks about how God fulfills this promise. It's like a father in the early 1900s saying, you know what, when you grow up and you get married one day, I'm gonna give you a horse and a buggy. You'll be able to ride all over town. You'll have a blast. And the little boy is so excited. But then when he grows up one day, he becomes an adult. He gets married. By that time, the automobile has been invented. And so the dad says, here you go. And he gives him a car. Now, did the dad break his promise? No. He, the, the substance of the promise is still the same. But it's even more glorious 
than the little boy could have ever dreamed it would be. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's fulfilling these promises as the I am in flesh. And it would be too much for these Jews to handle. Look at their response in verse 59. Probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible. So they picked up stones to throw at him. You know, there are some commentators that say, well, you know what, Jesus, he never claimed to be God. He was claiming to be a Messiah. He was claiming to be, you know, like Abraham or or something like that. Oh, really? Someone forgot to tell the Jews that. Because this is not the response you have to just another prophet. Just another godly man. This is a response that comes right out of Leviticus 24. The Jews aren't dumb. They know their Bibles. They know their Bibles better than we do. And they know that the penalty for blaspheming God is stoning to death. And so they're done with dismissing him as a liar and a lunatic. If this man claims to be God and he is merely a man, he deserves death. Unless he truly is the Lord. I know many people reread this and think, I struggle with Jesus. I have questions. I disagree with some of the things he says and and calls me to, but I would never go that far. If I were there, I would never do that. I would never try to kill him like that. You know, you live in a culture where you don't have to stone Jesus to death to kill him. When all you have to do is dismiss him. Dismiss his word. Call him a liar. Call him a lunatic. Say his word's crazy. It's, it's out of date. Oh, those commands? Those are for those crazy Christians. Take themselves a little bit too seriously. Or we can just redefine him. Reshape him into our image. Make him into someone that affirms our life choices. Someone that comes like a butler to give us good advice, but to never really tell us what to do. Not with authority and clarity. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Hear me on this. Jesus did not come to be a life coach. He did not come to be a religious guru, a good example, a great moral teacher, a theology professor, a political activist, a therapist, a marriage counselor, a butler, or a buddy or a pal. He is Lord of the universe. And he came to be worshipped as the Lord he is. He is the fork in the road. We have to make a choice with him. You can't, at the end of the day, merely like Jesus, merely get along with him, merely tolerate him. He demands a decision. And that's what Lewis actually says in that passage I talked about. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet And call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus came to be worshipped as the Lord he is. He came to redeem his people from their sins. And his people are those that bow before him in faith. Trust in his finished work. Submit to him in all things. He is the center of our lives. His word rules our life no matter what it costs. Surely there must be at least some symbolism in this last verse. If nothing else, just at least a warning to all of us. Look at verse 59 again. 
They picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The glory of God has left his temple. Just like in Ezekiel's vision, Jesus, the God-man, came to his dwelling place and is run out as a blasphemer. Tried to be stoned to death. I think what Augustine says is profound here. Let me summarize what he says in a sermon. He says this, Jesus may flee from stones, but woe to those from whom whose heart of stone God flees from. Jesus said, I am. How will you respond to that? Do you dismiss him? Will you redefine him so that you can tolerate him? Or will you with Thomas in John 20, 28 say, my Lord and my God, and then live like it? Let me pray. Father, we are humbled, broken by the ways that we don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Father, we're also thankful that he has come to do what sinners like us were never able to do, live in our place, to die in our place, to raise from the dead, to give us newness of life. So, Father, help us, soften our hearts that we might see what your word has to say. We might understand in the way that these Jews did not. And that we might submit to you as our God and our Lord. And empower us to live like it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.